Hey, good to see everybody, yes? It was great seeing you last week for Easter. It was great uh, celebrating or observing Maundy Thursday. It was great to party on Saturday, and it was really great to really party Sunday. It was great to see that room uh, at Holiday Inn full, and uh, it was great to celebrate in the daylight. And so I hope that was a blessed time for you. Let's do this. Would you, uh, as we've just now sat down, as we've just kind of gotten back and comfortable, let's just take another moment just to breathe, just to relax, maybe for the first time all day or for the first time at least this afternoon. And I'm going to speak these words. These uh, words are our prayer, and I'd invite you to just meditate and take your time with them. Let's open our time together with these words as a prayer. Oh, Jesus who called Lazarus from his tomb and presented him alive to his friends. Call me, I pray, from the tombs which seek to stifle the life I have. Remove from me the grave clothes which yet hinder my free movement in your spirit through the power of of your name. And take just a moment and maybe pray these words, Lord, breathe your life into me. Lord, breathe your life into us, we pray. Your life into this church. May we take off the grave clothes and run with our eyes fixed on the risen King. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, as I just mentioned, last week was Easter, and it's a big day. It's a day that changed the world, really. And so it got me thinking this week about three days that changed my life, okay? Three days that changed my life. If you're in a life stage or situation like me, I imagine you might come up with three similar days. The first one, in order, would be the day that I got married to Amy. That was a day when our lives, plural, became our life. One, our past, our futures merged, and while we had read the books and gone to counseling and thought we knew all about that, everything changed the day we got married. Good, bad, and ugly everything changed. That was a day that changed my life as I knew it. It became our life, our family unit one. That was a day that changed our life. So then what happened? God was good to us and surprised us big time. And uh, the second day that changed my life would be the day that Emma was born. And that was huge because with Emma, I went from being not a parent to a parent. That was a huge change. Yeah, we had nine months to try to get our heads around it, but good night. You can't get your head around that, especially when this chubby little redhead thing comes out and the rest of her's red, and you're just kind of like, oh, man, it's here. And I'm crying like a baby, and she's screaming like a baby because she's a baby, and it changed my life, right? So then the next day, of course, you know where I'm going because I'm sappy and just using all this family stuff, but the day that changed my life, number three, would be Nora, and that's the day where I thought, okay, I've already gone from not being a parent to parent, now what does this look like for Nora? Because all of a sudden the nine months went a lot quicker and we still had a chubby little redhead and I didn't know how this was going to work. 
But it changed my life because I realized it wasn't just addition, it was kind of like multiplication. Our love didn't really divide, it multiplied. Our troubles didn't divide, it multiplied. That's also a big change in my life because that's when Amy and I went from being perfect parents to, oh crap, pardon my French. So I'm looking at like the Adamses and the Thayers and I'm saying number three, I don't, I don't know what word I'll say next time. I mean, you thought crap was bad, but here we are. Well, since I said crap, now's a good time to turn to Luke chapter 24. We're going to talk about a day that changed the world's life. Life as we know it. And I use that word life because it was a word, a day that spoke life into a world that had only known death. Death and the tomb and cemeteries and the grave were the reality. Time after time and time after time. And then Easter came and changed everything. Easter changed everything. But the thing is that Easter is not just a day that changed everything. Easter is a daily reality that ought to change everything. Because if Jesus is alive, and we are in Jesus, and Jesus is with us, Easter is a daily reality because we get to walk with Jesus in new life. Easter is not just a day, it's a daily reality. And last week we said that Easter is a choice to say yes to hope and no to despair. Easter and the resurrection allowed us to say yes to hope and no to despair. So if we've made that choice, church, if we've said yes to hope, yes, Jesus is alive on Easter, now what? Well, now you walk in it. You don't just say he is risen, you say Yes, Lord, I'll follow. Because the risen Lord says, come to me, come follow me. I am alive and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Death does not have the last word. Easter is not just a day, it's a daily reality. And so when we walk in this hope, when we walk in this new reality, we see that every journey, as your inspirational posters tell you, Every journey, just like walking with Jesus, begins with a step. It begins with a step. And here's the thing. If Easter's and the resurrection is a daily reality, every step, every moment, right now, this moment, and then the next moment, right now, is an invitation to step out, walk with Him, and be transformed. I don't care what your day was like today. I mean, I do. I'm, uh, how was your day today? But whatever happened today or yesterday or last week does not define you. The risen Christ can define you if you step and walk with Him. And we're going to look at two people who had a really bad couple days. And we're going to do that in Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13. And they stepped out, they were walking, they were met by Jesus, and they find themselves transformed Tonight is a story of transformation. It's a story of journeying and walking with the risen Jesus. And it's a long chunk that we're going to look at tonight. We're going to look tonight <clears throat> at a familiar story with the risen Jesus from verses 13 to 35. That's a long time. And I don't want to be here all night as much as I love you. So how we're going to enter into this story tonight is a step at a time, seeing how each step they're invited 
to relate and react to the risen Jesus. We're going to see as their journey and as they walk, as they walk and respond to the risen Jesus, they're going to despair. They're going to doubt. They're going to move from doubt into curiosity. They're going to move from curiosity into discovering something new. And then they're going to see with new eyes and new life, with clarity. And then finally, they're going to go and bear witness to that. They move and they're transformed each step of the way, each process. And I'm inviting you together in this evening to look at a couple of guys who are stepping with Jesus, the risen Jesus, and they're reacting to Jesus. And each step is an invitation And each step is an invitation to new life. So let's begin the journey with them. Let's walk with them and let's see this day that changed their lives. And then we're going to ask about your day, your walk, your steps. Does that sound good? I'm alone with the girls this weekend, so I'm very tired. So if that didn't make any sense, hopefully the next bit will. Let's get into Luke chapter 24, verse 13. Let's meet these folks. That same day, what day is this? Easter Sunday, the day that changed everything, right? That same day, Sunday, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. So they're walking away from Jerusalem. They're headed to a place called Emmaus. We don't know where Emmaus is today. doesn't matter. They're walking there. As they walked along... They were talking about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. So this is funny because we know more than they do. All of a sudden, they're walking to Emmaus and Jesus suddenly comes and begins walking with them. That sounds awesome, right? But we know something they don't. Look, but God kept them from recognizing him. So these two guys are walking, they're talking about, man, that was a wild weekend. We were following Jesus, Jesus was talking and teaching and being really awesome, doing powerful things, and then all of a sudden he gets killed. That was crazy, wasn't it? And this is a heated discussion they're having. They're talking about what a crazy event, what a crazy weekend, and now it's Sunday and it's time to get on with your life. That was fun, but party's over, Jesus is dead. He was put into a tomb. We hadn't seen him, so let's just walk. But then Jesus comes with them, but they don't know that Jesus is walking alongside them. So this stranger to them that they can't tell asked them, Jesus asks them, what are you talking about so intently as you walk along? Now Jesus, this is, kind of, this is like an April Fool's prank. Like he is setting them up for failure, right? They don't know it's Jesus, He's all of a sudden kind of jogged up and he's caught up to them and he asks them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? Their world had just come crashing down around them. They're walking trying to make sense of a life in which Jesus is no longer alive. And they're taking a seven mile walk to the new town, trying to pick up the pieces and Jesus asks them this question while they're asking the question, what now? Have you been in a place where you were certain something was going to happen and it didn't and you say, what now? Because I've still got to wake up tomorrow and go through the motions. What now? 
We face a crisis and we face a choice. They're facing a life without Jesus. They're facing despair. And it says here in Luke, they stopped when Jesus asked them this question with sadness written across their faces. My Bible says they were downcast. Their heads were downcast. This is two people who are desperate. And so Jesus isn't mean. What Jesus is doing with these two desperate people is he's going to give them an opportunity to walk. To give them an opportunity to walk even in places of despair. We want answers when we're saying what next. Do we not? Shake your head yes. I didn't get that job. What now? I'm out of a job. What now? This person is dying. What now? This person left me. What now? I don't like the job I'm in. What now? I thought this person was going to be good to me and they've betrayed me. What now? We want answers. We want it fixed. And Jesus comes to them unrecognizable to walk with them and not give us the easy answers, but to give us perhaps a process of discovery because you know anytime you've taught someone, the easy answer may be a nice quick fix band-aid, but it doesn't invite Easter kind of transformation and new life. When we're despairing, we think Jesus is distant. When these two guys are walking to Emmaus, they think Jesus is distant, seven miles behind them in a tomb. What they don't know is he's actually right there with them. Right now, you think Jesus is distant because the question you're asking, you're not getting an answer. And I'm telling you, he's closer than you think. I'm telling you beyond a shadow of a doubt, he is right here in this moment. And this moment is an invitation to step with him, even in the valley of the shadow. Jesus is closer than you think, and he's giving you an opportunity for growth, even though it's hard. These people are despairing. Jesus asks them, what's going on? They stop short, dead in their tracks, and they're going to tell them. Let's look at the next section. They move from despair to doubt. We'll see this doubt in just a moment. Jesus asks them the question, and one of them, Cleopas, replied, You must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened there the last few days. They're talking to Jesus about the things that happened to Jesus. That's hilarious. Jesus is the master of the April Fool's prank. That's like asking Tony Romo what happened in last week's playoff game. It's Sunday afternoon and Tony Romo strolls up to two guys leaving the parking lot of Cowboys Stadium, and he says, hey, guys, why are you so bummed? Dude, because Tony Romo threw an interception, man, and our season's over. That's that's like a shadow of the equivalent of this. They have no idea what's going on, but they're going to say, here's what's going on, because Jesus says, what things? The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth. So this Jesus was the Jesus they had followed They had learned from. They had called teacher. Many of them, probably Cleopas and this person with him, called him Lord. And they call him Jesus the man from Nazareth. And then they go further and they say, he was a prophet. Now this was not unusual. Jesus had been called a prophet by many people, right? Jesus had been called a prophet. And he was a prophet, they said, who did powerful miracles. And he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. Fast forward to today. 
How many people are you walking with? I had a conversation with someone yesterday who told me all about how Jesus was a great teacher. They didn't even go prophet. They said he was a great teacher, a master teacher, they told me. I'm not making this up. This is very common. You've heard someone say this, yes? It's so incredible. What, how do we respond to Jesus? How do we talk about Jesus? How are these two talking about Jesus? He was a prophet who did powerful miracles and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and they crucified him. We had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. They hoped he was Messiah. They're calling him prophet. Here's the deal. Prophets got killed. Prophets got murdered. John the Baptist got his head cut off. Prophets get killed. Messiahs don't get killed. They thought Jesus was Messiah last Sunday, Palm Sunday. But now it's Easter Sunday. They've not seen Jesus and they're calling him prophet. They're doubting who they thought Jesus was. They had hoped he had come to rescue Israel. But clearly, people who rescue Israel can't be living or dead in a tomb. So they're doubting. I was sure of this Jesus, but I was wrong. Have you been there? I was sure of Jesus. I was sure of church. I was sure of the Bible. But surely I'm wrong. Do you know people who are there? It's not just us on a journey. Who are you walking with? Do you know doubters in your life? I had a conversation, like I told you a moment ago, of a doubter. Who can believe that people walk out of tombs? Who is Jesus? Cleopas, he said, a prophet. But just like this prophet died, his hope is dead. And so then, they move on. They say, this all happened three days ago. All this stuff happened three days ago, but now it party's over, time to go home. So Cleopas continues, he says, Then some women from our group of his followers were at his tomb early this morning. That's what we talked about last week. They came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing, and they had seen angels who told them Jesus is alive. Some of our men ran out to see. This is Peter and John. They have a race, tag your it, and they go to see what all the hubbub's about. Who moved the stone? Who moved the body? They said his body was missing, and they had seen angels who told them Jesus is alive. So some of our men ran out to see, and sure enough, his body was gone, just as the women had said. So here, we move from doubt to some curiosity. Could this really be true, right? Is that a rational question to ask of these two? Could this really be true? See, the news had already spread. It was early at the very beginning of Easter and already these two who were halfway to Emmaus talking with Jesus, though they don't know it's Jesus, had heard the news that his body was missing. So then we move from doubt into curiosity. Do you have people in your life who have moved from doubt to curiosity? They're asking you questions about Jesus. Could the news of him be true? Could that person who was so far from Jesus, who now is a very different person in Jesus, could that really be true or are they faking? Put it into our context. Could this really be true? My suspicion is that they had heard the news but they're still in a place of doubt. 
because they're walking away from the tomb, not toward it. Right? Amy is fond of saying, are you listening to me? And I said, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She said, what I say? And I said, uh, no, 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 no. And I'll, I may repeat it verbatim. You know? Throw away those diapers. Don't just leave them on the floor. But the fact remains, the diaper's on the floor. And she says, no, no. You're hearing. <laughs> I was about to do a mean Amy voice. <laughs> no, no, no. Adam, you're hearing, but you're not listening. These people have heard the news. They're not listening. They're not letting it seep into their bones. But the deal is this. If people are asking you questions, if you're asking questions, that's a step toward Jesus. They had heard the news, and at least their curiosity has peaked. But we move on along our walk with the risen Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, You foolish people. Whoops! Never a good thing to hear from Jesus. You find it so hard to believe. Now stop. These two people said, We heard from the women and some of our men, and they told us a crazy thing this morning. Jesus does not say right here, You foolish people, why didn't you believe those women? Is it because they're women? Jesus did not say, why didn't you believe Peter and John when they ran and didn't find the body? No, he says, why do you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures? Wasn't it clearly predicted that Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? But Jesus doesn't just rebuke them. Jesus doesn't just rebuke you even in despair, even in places of curiosity, Jesus is not going to leave you at rebuke. He's going to give opportunity for new life. He's going to give you an invitation in this moment and this moment and this moment to new life, to new discovery, to find yourself in process, and he is going to lead you by the hand further and further into life if you're willing to go there. These two were, and Jesus took them. When was the last time you perceived Jesus took you? Earlier in the despair phase, in the doubt phase, I told you, do you feel like Jesus is distant? When you're walking in the valley of the shadow, even in that place, at each step, at each moment in your walk, Has there come a moment where you feel, and you don't know how to really articulate it, except perhaps with these words, Jesus took me. About a month ago or more, we talked about how Jesus took the deaf and mute man away from the crowd to a quiet place so he could heal him. Has Jesus taken you? When was the last time Jesus took you? When was the last time you took Jesus with you in the car to work? When was the last time you took him with you into that family situation that is bleak and desperate and always about to boil over? I've got to take Jesus into those places because it's going to get ugly if not. Maybe Jesus needs to take you. Well, he took them and through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, read All of the Bible as they knew it at that time. Jesus didn't just send proof texts over Facebook and say, believe it or else. Jesus walks with them, not just to Emmaus, but through the scriptures, through a process of discovery, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning what? 
biblical principles you can apply to your life. Just take it, put a band-aid on it, and go beat your friends over the head with it. Or did he look in Moses and all the prophets, not Mark, which probably predated this, Luke or all this. No, Moses and all the prophets explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In our church, we want to be Jesus-centered Bible readers that look from Moses to the prophets and beyond that to Revelation and say, where's Jesus? Is Jesus your guide through the scriptures? If he is, you're in a place of discovery. You're in a place of life. If Jesus walks through the scriptures and says, this is me, this is me, this is me, and you're reading the scriptures and you don't see Jesus, you don't put it through Jesus' lens, you don't put your Jesus glasses on and say, oh, this is crazy let me just leapfrog everything Jesus said because all that that's all New Testament stuff no Jesus was very content to say this is me 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 and he probably with these two looked at places like Isaiah 52 53 that says Messiah is not going to cause suffering Messiah is not just going to release and rescue Israel from suffering hear me He's going to rescue Israel through suffering. And he walks them through and says, He himself has borne our sins and iniquities, and by his wounds you are healed. He took them to places probably like Psalm 16 that's talking about God's promise to raise his king, and he's taking them and he's guiding them, and he will guide you if you're walking with him and taking that step, that invitation, every step. Every moment is an invitation to step out and walk with Him. Every time you open this book is an invitation not to check off a box because some person told you you've got to. Every time you open this book is an invitation to see Jesus. So they've been reading, not perceiving. A moment ago they had heard the words, they're not listening Now they're reading the words and they're not perceiving. Maybe many of you in your community Bible experience, even like me, can I confess to you, reading seven chapters a day could read but not perceive. Perhaps you're knee deep in Leviticus or 2 Chronicles and you're reading and not perceiving. Let me speak a word of life and hope to you. Scale it down, find something that works for you. Ask Jesus to guide you Look to Jesus and find life and find him present there. And if you can't hack it through Second Chronicles, jump to the Psalms. It's earthy, it's real. All of this Bible is inspired, authoritative, and life-giving. But man, don't just work. Don't just feel guilty about it. Find life. If you're not seeing Jesus, something's wrong. If you're going to this thing every single day. Not to guilt you. That's for life. That's for life. Don't get lost in the weeds. He will show you. Read and perceive. Not just get information, but be formed by the word. So now these people, back to our Emmaus journeymen. Now they've discovered God's plan that it's not just from suffering, it's through suffering. You with me? Now we've moved from discovery to a place of clarity. Have you been in the place of Scripture where the light bulb dings and life enters in? 
And here's what we see with our travelers here. By this time, they were nearing Emmaus. Took them a long time to get through the Bible. Y'all think we're here a long time. I've been preaching for 30 minutes every week. Let Jesus get up here and drop some Moses through the prophets on you. By this time, they were nearing Emmaus at the end of their journey. And Jesus acted as if he were going on. Oh, that prankster again, man. But they begged him, stay the night with us. It's nearly getting late. You're going to get mugged on the road. You know, we can't call you a cab. Come and be with us. So he went home with them. As they sat down to eat, Luke is all about having people eat together. There's something brilliant in the Gospel of Luke that all beautiful things tend to happen around a meal setting. So Jesus, like he had before, before he was crucified, goes and he sits down to eat. But this time, something incredible happens. He took the bread and he blessed it. Oh, he's done that before when he fed the 5,000. Oh, he's done that before in the upper room. These two followers didn't know it, but he's done this before. This is a Jesus thing that he's done. Then he broke it and he gave it to them. He broke the bread and he gave it to them. And it's in the meal when the body, the bread was broken in that space, in that intimate dinner fellowship space, suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Stick with me here. What was the first meal in all of the Bible? Think about Genesis. What was the first thing someone in creation, according to Genesis, what was the first thing or first time someone put something in their mouth and ate it that were recorded in Scripture? Eve took the fruit and her eyes were opened. And at that first meal of creation, her eyes were opened and she saw her nakedness and she was ashamed and she saw something different about her husband. She saw something different about her relationship to the God who loved her and has given her all things that were good and for her life. All of a sudden her eyes are opened and she sees death. That was the first meal of creation. Now, what is the first meal of new creation? Jesus takes the bread, blesses it, gives it to two people. And when their eyes are opened, they don't see a dead Jesus. They see for the first time the living Jesus. This meal in new creation, is God's way, Luke's brilliant way of saying, when our eyes are open now and when we encounter the risen Christ, we see life, not death. These men who had started their journey saw only death. These men who had started their journey saw only confusion. Now, when the bread is broken, Jesus present to them in the meal, Jesus present to us in a moment in the meal, we should not see death. We should see life. We should be at a place, God help us, where we don't see confusion. We see clarity. That's what's going on. Are we awake church to Jesus with us in the bread in the wine in the fellowship with other people in our midst powerful words deeds not just prophet living king messiah this is what we've got to be about at that moment he disappeared it was just enough for them at that moment 
They had heard all the stories and scriptures that pointed to Jesus. It was just enough in that moment to know he was alive. And it was just enough to know he was alive because then they said, we feel alive again. Look what they say. They said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? Didn't we know something was different about this guy? Didn't we know it? We couldn't recognize it, but weren't our hearts alive? When was the last time your hearts were alive? When was the last time Jesus has took you, led you, you've been in the presence of other people, Jesus, in this community, and your hearts have been burning within you? Has it been a long time, church? Has it been a whole year, church? Hello? You know what I'm talking about when I talk about this year? I'm here to tell you that Jesus has walked with us every step of the way from despair and doubt and curiosity and discovery. He's walked with us and every moment in the last year has been an invitation to come to him and find life. He doesn't want our hearts on life support. He wants our hearts burning with life because Jesus said, I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Why are we settling with half life? Why do we settle for the heart that's barely holding on when Jesus every moment every step is saying, I'm giving you life. I'm giving you abundant life. These people knew now through this experience, their eyes are open to Jesus. Now Jesus is alive and they feel alive again. As we draw to a close and our time winds down, I don't want to do a disservice to this last section, but the reaction was not just clarity that Jesus is alive and now there's alive. They have to go and tell someone about it because the only thing that had been working through their followers and their disciples had been a word or news, but now they've got an experience and their eyes have seen the living Christ and they go and bear witness. It is true, they say. Easter changed their lives. This was the first Easter. These two people, Cleopas and this other person, it could have been his wife, could have been another man traveling with him, their lives were changed. But here's the thing. It wasn't just a cool day. It was a daily reality. Because remember those three days I told you about? When I got married to Amy, I didn't stop being married to Amy May 29th, 2010. I'm married to her today. Emma and Nora, by God's grace, are still with us here now. It's a daily reality, these worlds, these days that changed my life as I knew it. And Easter ought to be the same for us. Because the risen Jesus walks with us. And even when we don't recognize him, even though now you don't recognize him in the face of that person who is laboring with you, inviting you to life, even when you don't recognize him in the words of the scriptures today, Perhaps tomorrow is the day of discovery. And so I'm going to ask you right now, how's your walk going? Where are you in that step? Where are you in that progression? Are you, is your heart burning or is your heart barely holding on? Are you exhausted? Church, are you exhausted? 
I shared with our community this week, I'm fired up. But there are many among us who are exhausted, who are not fired up, who look out and say, what now? What next? That's not a comment on how much they love Jesus. That's the reality that we can't be on fire all the time. Contrary to what your youth pastors told you if you grew up in the church, you got to be on fire. Your heart is not something that's designed to be on fire all the time, but it is designed each moment to walk. We ought not to be a church that's about the sprint. Are we preparing for the long run, the marathon? So how's your walk? I want to enter into a space and I want to give you a disclaimer. These are diagnostic questions, okay? Because I just asked you how your walk is, but you're probably saying, oh, that's great, and you're packing up your Bible and you're ready to go. These questions are not designed to guilt you. These questions are designed like that engine light on your dashboard to alert you to something in your heart that may be on life support. And I ask you, church, how is your walk going? And so I'm asking you, because we looked at it, Jesus took these two people through the Scriptures, so let's talk about the Bible. Let's talk about God's Word. Where are you in your walk with the Bible? Are you reading the Bible regularly? We just finished the community Bible experience that was five days a week for eight weeks, and it ate a lot of your lunches. It ate my lunch a couple days in a couple weeks. <clears throat> I mean, a few. Con true confessions are, are, hello? All right. Are you reading your Bible regularly? And what I mean by this is, if seven chapters a day was too much for you, it was too much for me. I have a rhythm of a gospel scene a day that I'll journal, a psalm or two a day that I'll pray, and I'll look at an Old Testament scene, and I'll look at a New Testament paragraph. That is what works for me. That may not work for you. The community Bible experience may not have worked for you. But are you being formed by God's Word? Are you seeing Jesus there as we talked about earlier? And let me simplify it. If you are struggling to see Jesus, let me pass on something that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. did every single day. Every single day he read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7. to He read the Sermon on the Mount every morning. He lived his life, he changed the world, and in the evening he would go back through his day and say, where was I off because the Sermon on the Mount says things like don't have anger in your heart where he would ask was there anger in my heart where was lust in my heart he would measure himself against the greatest sermon ever preached and he said how am I turning the other cheek and he changed the world because of his commitment to live the words of Jesus not explain them away that was a spirit of God movement, the civil rights movement. And it was because of men that marked and shaped their lives and walked with Jesus in such a way that they took His words seriously. Our church's best days are behind us if we don't take Jesus' words seriously. My community asked me for a pep talk this week, and I don't know if this is a pep talk, it's a butt kick to me. Where are you at with your Bible, Scripture? Where are we with prayer? Again, these are not to guilt you. These are to check under the tires. Where's your walk? 
Are you talking to Jesus? You can't be transformed by Jesus if there's not this relationship to him. Eugene Peterson even said, prayer is only part of it. Silence has to be a part of that too. Are you talking? Are you trying to be still? Well, let me ask you this. If not, are you struggling to pray? Several months ago, we talked about prayer and we said there's really three obstacles to prayer. We overcomplicate it. We want to make our words fancy and nice. The church I grew up in, a dude would say thou and thee and thy. And then you'd say, where are you going to lunch? You'd say, oh, I'm going to first, buddy. What you doing, man? He's overcomplicating it, man. Just be real. Pour your heart out to the Lord. That's the first obstacle is we overcomplicate it. Sometimes we get distracted, right? Sometimes we get distracted. Bud, Pastor Bud would say, can I say it? He takes Jesus to Kroger with him most every day. He's praying for you and he's talking about, you know, life or health and he's praying for you and then he says, oh, and that reminds me, I need to go get eggs because something about Elise Harlow reminds me of eggs. And he takes Jesus to Kroger. Sorry, Elise. Just making sure everybody's awake. Another obstacle to prayer, I think, is simply just we're unaware of how powerful prayer is. And not just power to affect things, it affects us. Prayer grounds me in such a way where I can live the Sermon on the Mount, not by my power, but because I've meditated and looked and heard from Jesus. I don't want to turn the other cheek. Prayer can ground us. We're unaware of its power and its grounding presence. So when's the best time for prayer in your day? Is it in the morning? Do you wake up or are you a zombie like I am? Do you wake up early and do you do this? How about this? Do you drive to work? If you don't drive to work, if you're a stay-at-home mom, where's that moment of quiet or space built into your day? Is it nap time? That's what it is for my wife. She don't get up at 5 a.m., but them girls go down about 2 p.m. Where's that time for you? Is it lunch? Is it in the evening? You've got to find what works for you if we want power and presence and grounding. Are you aware of his presence, that he's walking with you throughout your day? Because all this I talked about tonight, each moment as an invitation, means nothing if you're not hearing the invitation if you're not alerting and keeping yourself awake to the fact that he is walking with you, though you may not recognize him. That's prayer. What else do we have? Community. Let's, let's go through these as we close. Are you sharing life with God's people? Are you walking with someone to an Emmaus? Are you walking with someone in despair? Are you the person in despair who's walking with you? Who's walking with you? Who's speaking truth and love into your life? Are you committed to breaking bread with your missional community? Are you living life on mission together? Are you breaking bread? Are you committed to that time or is that just another tough night getting them kids out the house and trying to get there? Yes, it's hard to get the kids out the house to get there. It's hard to get your single self from work there. It's hard to shift gears and talk and eat and pray and listen. But are you committed to it? Are times of worship, fellowship, and mission priorities in your life? I'm not just talking Saturdays, though I think Saturdays are priority. 
Are these things priorities in your life? Are they things that are fallen by the wayside? If you find yourself in a difficult place in your walk, could you tie it back to this? Because you're not, it's like you're an ATM and you're making constant withdrawals. Everybody's needing your attention and you're giving and you're giving and you're giving and you're giving and there's nothing being deposited in your life. Finally, are you bearing witness to the risen one? Are your words and actions pointing to life and the living one? These people, when they were transformed, walking with Jesus, is your heart burning? Is your heart on life support? When their hearts were burning, they were telling people about Jesus who's alive. And by God's grace, we would be people who are burning with hearts of love and passion to go and tell people about this person who is alive. He's not just a teacher and a prophet. So as we close, I just remind you that any journey begins with a step. Each moment is an invitation to step out, walk with Jesus, and be transformed. Wherever you are, by God's grace, would you step out in this moment? And would we find him as we break the bread and drink the wine that Jesus is with us, church? And I believe that best and good and better times are ahead of us, okay? All right, let's pray. Father, we're grateful that you sent Jesus who emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant, someone who would walk with us, someone who would not be immune to our grief or despair. He made himself intimately aware of what it means to be human. So Lord, would we seek Him and see Him and in any small way You're inviting, would You give us the strength and the grace to step toward You and find You taking a hundred more steps toward us. Bless us, keep us awake and alive because You are alive. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing a couple songs and we're going to invite you as we do every week to remember the sacrifice of Jesus as we break the bread and as we share the wine because we do it together. You do not walk alone, church. You may feel alone, but you're not alone. And communion reminds you, you have community around Jesus. So let's stand, let's sing, let's celebrate that Jesus is alive.